Well, the, the practice that you're asking about uh, with the teachings of the Buddha is like practice for anything that no football star that's in the uh, profession didn't practice with, uh, or let us say, he practiced. He wouldn't have gotten there if he hadn't practiced. That in fact, he got into professional sports because he was in the minor league. And he got into the minor league because he was in college. He was in college because he was playing in high school. He was in high school playing because he had already practiced, okay? So it's practice and practice and practice and practice. That's for football. For music, it's the same way. That uh, piano players have to practice scales and chords. They have to practice fingering. They have to practice it over and over again. And the same skill of practice that is the same for uh, every new piece of music that he learns. But because of his practice, his skill levels are high. And so the new practice is more fruitful than the old practice. But it's still practice. Okay. Um, it, then, in fact, it's kind of a funny thing. Um, uh, there are several jokes about it. One of the common jokes is, um, I don't want uh, to go to that doctor. He's still practicing medicine. <laughs> and the answer is, yes, but you can't find a doctor who does not continue to practice medicine. That in fact, if, if he stopped practicing medicine is not because he knows medicine it's because he <laughs> he doesn't take on any more patients yeah all right so when we understand it like that that's just the start of it because i've got students who just don't understand that i've dealt with one just today who just does not understand that it's all about practice she wants to do it one time and be finished with it. She wants to throw an unwholesome thought out one time, and now she has no more unwholesome thoughts. Okay. Or she doesn't want to make any more mistakes playing the piano, so she has to stop playing the piano. Except that that doesn't work. There's more to it than that. And this is a more difficult one for people to understand. And that is that in the teaching of piano, the teacher can hear what the student has been doing, what's been practicing this week. A, a student cannot take a piano lesson and then go home and do nothing about the piano and then come back a week later and take another piano lesson and expect to have any progress. That is, in fact, is basically nothing more than listening to the piano teacher play music at a very high price. Very expensive just to listen to the piano teacher play music if you're not going to actually learn what you're there to. And the learning is not what the teacher says or what happens in class. The real practice has to be done between. That in fact, the last time that we talked, we uh, you had mentioned uh, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, and that I had known a bit about that, but I went ahead and went back and did some research, and found the research that I had done recently was a whole lot better than what the gossip that I had heard about it. So I'm glad I didn't tell you the gossip that I'd heard about it because then it was just facts. Now it's gossip, and so I can share it as gossip. Okay. And it, uh, the gossip has some truth in it, and that is, is that cognitive behavioral therapy is nothing but B.F. Skinner plus a little dab of Buddhism. Well, you know that B.F. Skinner was the one with the Pavlovian experiments about dogs. He was Pavlo number two. Okay. And it's all about 
behavioralism, right? This is the issue, or this is again the problem, and then uh, is is that when you practice piano and go to the next lesson, the teacher knows you practice the piano because he can hear it. Okay, if you've been practicing baseball, practicing catching, then people can see that because now you can begin to catch. All right? The problem with this stuff is, is that when you practice it, it's really, really not possible for anyone to tell whether you've been practicing or not. And in fact, we don't know what's in the mind of other people. That in fact, most of the population don't even know when they're being lied to. By the millions, they will listen to a politician or listen to a newscast and just take it in and just believe it. Okay, so we do not know what's in the mind of other people, but we do have the ability to see the behavior that they have. This is where the cognitive behavioral issues come in is, is that the results of correct practice can be seen by those who know how to look. But the practice itself has to be done within one's own mind. You cannot take your brain to a surgeon and have him rewire the thing so that now you have wholesome thoughts. But this is the basic issue of the practice. So we've talked about two issues now. One is, is that uh, one must continue to do the practice. The question is, can you enjoy the practice? Because if you're enjoying the practice, then it's not so much practice anymore as it is just doing what you're doing. And it happens to be practice at the same time. Um, the other part of it is, is that even though we're doing the practice, it's not evident that we're practicing. That this is something that happens on the inside of the mind. And when we understand those two qualities to it, then we can start to practice correctly. And so Going back to the very basics now of the practice, the Buddha said in several different suttas. In fact, one time we did a, a research, and I it's all in Skype someplace, but we've got four suttas where the Buddha said this. So it is definitely said in um, sutta number 22 in the Majjhima Nikaya in the simile of the snake, where he said both formally and now I teach only one thing, and that is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Now, Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda actually fits into the Four Noble Truths. That in fact, it is just a very simple way of statement stating the Four Noble Truths. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda is in fact the first and the third truth. So between Dukkha and Dukkha Naroda, is the cause of the dukkha and then the at, at the end of it, that is what do we do to come out of the dukkha so that we can dwell in the third noble truth rather than dwelling in the first noble truth and so this is the entire teachings of the buddha this one phrase dukkha dukkha naroda but that one phrase can be stated many 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 different ways one of them that Goenka uses is, never mind, start again. Never mind, start again. The Duke is there, yeah, never mind. Let's do Kinaroda instead, all right? The one that I like and, and use often is, don't worry, be happy. Again, Duke, Duke Naroda. The worry is the Duke, don't worry, be happy. Um, so these, this is basically it. The problem with humanity is that they can hear these things, Dukkha, Dukkha, Naroda, or never mind, start again, or don't worry, be happy. But that's just good advice. The world is full of good advice. 
People go to doctors to get good advice. They go to psychologists to get good advice. We go to lawyers to get good advice. We go to accountants to get good advice. There's all kinds of places we go to get good advice. But it's really hard to follow that advice when you're filling out your tax returns and you don't like the figures that you've come up with. You want to kind of adjust them and you don't want to really hear good advice that the um, uh, accountant has said that'll keep you out of jail. You want to sort of cut corners and take risk and that kind of thing. So good advice. We've got tons of good advice. The problem is that we don't take it. Not when we need it the most. We can take that advice in the sense of hearing it, mull it over, figure out it's correct. And then we can actually give that advice to other people. But when the going gets tough or when the moment comes that you need it under stress is where we fail to remember to take that good advice. So much of the teaching of the Buddha has that quality also is, is that the practice means that, um, that especially the number one skill that is to develop of sati is to remember. To remember. To remember over and over again, we practice remembering to come back into here now. So when the time is there, when we really need to remember to be here now, rather than our bad feelings, we forget because the bad feelings are what we've been doing all along, and we don't take the good advice of come out of your bad feelings and come in and be in a good state. And that's basically the whole teachings of the Buddha. But we got into the habit of being in a bad mood because we were trained that way as children. I'm really a big fan on uh, developmental psychology, especially Freud's version of it, and Alexander Lowen and, and body types and all of that kind of stuff. I'm, I'm kind of really interested in that. And then in the past few years, I've actually had a, um, a specimen, an actual human child, She's nine years old now, but I keep renewing that with, with dogs and puppies. We've got a new puppy that she's only, uh, I think she's about nine, maybe 10 weeks old now. And so um, <clears throat> it's really fun to watch this development. Now, in the beginning, you know, here's something that's really interesting. Everybody loves a young animal, a kitten, a puppy. They're beautiful. They're cute. Their eyes are big. It brings out an instinct of us, our motherly instinct or our nesting instinct, right? And so this happens with humans big time, that every child is nurtured when he is born. If we're not nurtured, then we're abandoned, given away for adoption or whatever like that. And that always means something is, is missing in there. And that if a child is truly not nurtured and not abandoned, he'll wind up either dying soon or becoming some sort of a freak. So we all start off with getting nurtured. How long, though, does the nurturing last? How long does little baby Johnny stay little baby Johnny? Well, one of the events that happens is the second child is born, and now little Johnny becomes mommy's little helper. And her nourishment and her nurturing goes to the new infant. Her bonding goes to the new infant. And Johnny's left it with a new job to do. Mommy's little helper. And then the next one would be um, that we have to go to school. Mommies are told, oh, you can't just nurture and carry your baby around for the next 20 or 30 years, though some moms try to do that. But no, you gotta let him go and you gotta put him into society and you gotta put him to work, you gotta put him in first grade. And this is where all the nurturing changes into getting it right. You can't draw your R's and your K's backwards. You gotta get it right, okay? And this is where critical thinking comes in. Now, critical thinking, there's two kinds of critical thinking. One is, and actually it's just two different definitions of the word, really. Critical thinking, we, we highly praise in our society, means you have to look and pay attention to what's really going on, taking in data and processing it correctly. The 
this is what we call critical thinking. But that's kind of the new kid on the block. The original point about uh, critical is criticism, being critical. A, um, <clears throat> a movie critic is not going to be a movie critic long if he praises highly every movie that he goes to. No, the people, I mean, this is printed in newspapers where you get all the dirt. So you want all the dirt about the movie. You want critics to criticize. And this is what happens with this critical thinking that we do is we begin to criticize ourselves rather than nurturing ourselves. And we get deeply into the habit of comparing ourselves to others only to fail at it winding up being prideful for short periods of time and mostly we spend our time in jealousy and then we apply those rules the same way over and over again when we're adults holding ourselves to standards that we can't meet and then feeling disappointed about it i think the uh you froze for like half a minute so i missed some yeah, stuff. i think you froze. never mind Yeah, no, I, I, I didn't finish the call. It just cut out or something. Right. Uh, I hear it. Uh, it just rose. So anyway, getting back to what we were talking about with, with children is, is that we start off as victims and we never go through any kind of event or process or thing that it is to grow up. We always want long to grow up and we have these things. But in some cultures, there are uh, situations that are called rite of passage, that are really truly rites of passage. Um, I guess that it had to do with when do the little boys stop hanging around their mommies in the hunt in the hunter gatherer society and go out gathering, and when do the boys start hunting with the men? Okay, when do we grow up? because that's not well defined in our society. We don't have rites of passage. One of the rites of passage that I'm very familiar with because of my own background and whatnot is in the American Indian tradition. Some of the tribes had a rite of passage that required the young buck to go out uh, and, and hang out in the forest by himself, most likely um, uh, building a little tree house which was nothing more than a seat in the tree or a place for him to hang out. And that's where he stayed. And that the idea is to hang out there for a moon, a month. And that would be his rite of passage. If he can survive on his own out in the wilderness and then come back to the tribe, he's worthy of coming back to the tribe. If he comes back early, that's a kind of a failure, okay? Um, you could think of, in fact, uh, a more ceremonial way would be the bar mitzvah, the bar mitzvah that they have in the Jewish culture, a rite of passage. You have to do all of this and then you're a man. We don't have any of that kind of stuff in the West, but we have some substitutes. One would be like graduating from school. Another one would be getting married. Another one would be getting a job except that there's nothing really special about that that gives the, the, the young man or woman uh, an idea that now you have to change from being a victim into being a full adult responsible human being that can manage your own mind because no one else can do that for you anymore. That as a child, you were moldable. And unfortunately, as children, we were molded into the society that was um, presented to us by adults who had been molded <laughs> in an unwholesome way in the first place. And so uh, every generation, you, you've heard this. In fact, it's in the Bible that the sons of uh, that the um, the sins of the father are visited upon the son up into seven generations. Which means that if you're raised in a violent household as a child, you're more likely to live in a violent household when you're an adult. If there's no alcohol allowed in the house when you're a child, more than likely there's not going to be much alcohol ever in your house as an adult. 
Okay, so if if you um, are born into a family of musicians, especially a father who is going to intend that you're going to be a musician, then that child is going to grow up and be a musician. That actually happened to me, but not the way that it did to Mozart. It happened to him. <laughs> okay, so this way that we're raised, if we are raised by people who are still feeling victimized by the society, feeling victimized by their jobs, being victimized by the government, being victimized by big government, being victimized by religion, then they will pass that on to their kids. And to now we as kids raise up as being and continue to play that role of victim. And the whole teachings of the Buddha is to recognize that that victimhood is a mentality that we have that is dukkha itself and that we can change out of that into um, a place that is uh, sukha where we feel safe we feel secure we feel comfortable we feel successful and that feeling is what is missing in most people. Most people don't feel successful, comfortable, satisfied, content, comfortable. Most feeling, even if they're very rich, they don't have those qualities. In fact, the very, very rich are really, really afraid of losing their wealth. You don't have any wealth, you don't have much fear of losing it. So the more you got, the more fear there is. Now, they do have their comforts, but wait a minute, those expensive yachts have to be maintained, and that takes my money away. So every time I have to uh, uh, fix that comfortable yacht, I become afraid, so it's not so comfortable after all. And so this is the way that we are um, living our lives that are based in the fears that we have as being the underdog. That we have to protect ourselves because we live in a dangerous environment. Guess what? The environment you're in right now is not dangerous. That's one of the lies that we've been told. But if you tell everybody the lie that it's dangerous, then everybody goes around to not only feeling danger, but creates danger. But the reality is, is that things are not dangerous. Well, it's created. I mean, a, a precipice is not dangerous until you go to the edge of it and start thinking about or not watching your footing. And then it's, the precipice is dangerous. Okay. So it's still what's happening in the mind that creates the danger. So what we need to do then is practice feeling safe because we have been practicing feeling in danger, feeling insecure, feeling unsafe. So now the practice of the Buddha is to learn to feel safe, safe and secure. Very interesting. That's, that's a, a feeling safe and secure is different than feeling fearless. Let me make that distinction. Abaya, does not mean fearlessness, though that's the way that it's translated into English, because it's not fear, okay? Well, not fear doesn't mean necessarily fearlessness. What it really means is feeling safe and secure. Someone who is fearless, that's called courage, that they're willing to do something in the face of danger. So the, um, uh, the, Big dude will get up his armor, put his uh, 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 knight's hoods on, get his swords out, and he'll walk right out very confident into the field of battle. Why? That's fearlessness now. Well, why? It's because there's danger. If he were feeling safe and secure, then he'd be cooking dinner, getting ready for his new guest to come in. But he sees him as an enemy rather than a friend. So what we have to do now is practice feeling safe and secure, not feeling fearless in the face of danger, but feeling safe and secure without having any danger, that we feel safe and secure because the place that we're in is safe and secure. A paradise, in fact. 
So we have look around the room that you're in. You can recognize that in fact you're, you're safe. There's no alligators on the floor. There's no crocodiles. There's no um, pythons or rattlesnakes. Um, there's no Russian mafia peeping in the window. There's no sweat SWAT team banging on your door. Everything is okay right now. And so this is part of the way that we practice. This is part of the wholesome thoughts is to throw out the, the thoughts that we have of work to do or things that we will help us to feel safe and, and start to practice being safe right here, right now. To feel safe, safe and secure. So that means then that when you're working with people, Guess what? Most people, when they're going to a doctor or the psychologist, they really don't feel safe at all. And don't and being with the doctor or the psychologist doesn't make them feel any safer. Then, in fact, I have seen some of the um, I saw a short one just recently of, of House. No doubt you know about House. Yeah, I watched it uh, several times. <laughs> OK, well. Um, one one episode that I saw, just a short clip, is, is that the uh, the hospital head doctor, the administrator, required him to go in when he didn't want to go in because they had a waiting room full of people. And so he walks into the re, uh, waiting room full of people and tells them what qualifications he has. And then he talks about how he really doesn't want to see them. He was hauled in here against his will. And he's going to go into that office there. But how many people want to see be seen by a doctor who wants to see them? And how many people want to be seen by me? Because I don't want to be here. Okay, so uh, that was the way that he was putting it. But this is the point is, is that nobody wants to see him because he's angry. And he uh, is exuding danger. And in that regard, we um, as professionals have to present our way ourselves as being safe. But the real issue about the teachings of the Buddha here is, is that we have to be able to feel safe. And that needs practice because House didn't know how to walk in there and feel safe himself. He was feeling abused. He was the victim of the hospital administrator, and he passed that victimhood on to the clients intentionally. <laughs> All right, so this is a good point now that we can recognize that we are responsible for our own feelings of safety and security. And that needs to be practiced because there are 10,000 different things that will help us feel unsafe and insecure. That's what our society is built upon. But in fact, the whole point about society is, is that it's never good. It needs to be increased. It needs to be improved. It needs to be fixed because it's not safe. But in fact, we started in, in the jungle. Then we built tents, maybe caves, then a, big, uh, a bit of a structure, then houses, then villages, and now cities. Except that the city is now called a concrete jungle. It's still not safe. So the things that we do on the outside in our society hasn't made us as human beings or as animals feel safe and secure. And that was the whole point about building a society in the first place. Your average person, in fact, feels unsafe if they have forgotten and left their cell phone at home. They feel sort of safe because they've got that security of their, their cell phone. They've got a time structure. They've got the way to call 911 if they need it. All kinds of things like that is built into that safety. What you can say is, is that modern man's cell phone is nothing but primitive man's acts. And he feels safe because he feel, he's got that physical item. And that's his safety blanket. You go to lions. He feels unsafe and unsecure without that dirty blanket. He won't even let anybody wash it for him. So this is the whole point of the teaching of the Buddha is that we have to come out of this victimhood. 
Uh, um, and, and here's many of the things about victims. They complain. Winners don't complain. Everything's already okay. Victims plead. Winners don't need to plead. They've already got it. They've got everything that they need. And it's really just a major point of an attitude. Now, this whole idea of attitude is actually kind of buried in the sutras. It's hard for uh, us to pull it out, but I thought that I would make a mention of it as we go into these four noble truths is, is that the victim is the one who suffers. And the cause of the suffering is because the victim wants something that he doesn't have. He also does not like putting up with things that are hard to put up with. And he is ignorant about what to do about it. In fact, he's not just ignorant, he's delusional in the sense that he thinks that he has to get that item in order to feel safe and secure. And it goes like this. First off, I like it. It's beautiful. Then I say, and this happens in the mind, I mean, wickedly split to the point that it doesn't even take one mind moment to have this whole trail go. All right. First, I like it. From the point of view that I like it, that means that I would like to continue to like it. This is pleasant. Let's just let this last. In order for me to let this last, I've got to draw that thing close near to me. If she's, if she's beautiful, then I want her to be mine. Okay. Except if she's not even hers. Because her mind is that of a victim's also. So how could she be responsible enough for her own being to give herself to you or to me? Right? That's kind of the delusion that we live in, thinking that we can own someone. We can control other people when they're out of control themselves. And so this greed and ill will and uh, are basically the same thing. And that is, is that if I have greed and I want something, then I have ill will for not having it. If I have something that I've got to put up with, like the neighbors being noisy, then I want them to shut up. So greed and will, ill will are the same thing, and they're both based in ignorance. And this is the cause of suffering. Once we see that and recognize it and come out of our greed and come out of our ill will, then we're in that third noble truth. There we are, completely satisfied. Now we're a winner. Not just a winner, a champion. The Buddha is known as being a lion. Okay? And so how do we convert that from being the loser, being the victim, into being the winner, being the lion? How do we get our mojo? How do we bring ourselves up? As they say, pull yourselves up by your bootstraps, right? Because you know that that doesn't work. Unless, of course, you take the boots off and hang them high. And then you can pull yourself up by your bootstraps. <laughs> so um, this then is the, the whole point about the Eightfold Noble Path. The Eightfold Noble Path is the method that we will go through to gain that mojo, to gain that um, spirit, to gain that winnership, gain the right attitude. That's the word that we're looking for. So this method is not actually a path. Many people have the mistake that the Eightfold Noble Path is a path like a footpath or a bicycle path or a path to nowhere uh, or a path to prosperity, something like that. But a path always has the quality of it's a long way away from here. This is much more like a puzzle box of the mind. And it needs to keep being opened, opening it, opening it over and over and over again. Practice opening the mind. So it's much more like a door not a path it's more like a door that's locked and all we have to do is take our key the secret ingredient that mcdonald's gave us that key put it in the lock turn the lock turn the knob and push and the door is open 
that's all we really need to do. That's the real teachings of the Buddha. What is the key is to remember that we can unlock this door. To remember that we can change. To remember that we don't have to stand outside in the cold. We can go right in. That's the whole idea of sati, is to remember to first off look at what's going on. Look at the situation. Look at the fact that we are playing victim. Look at the fact that we're complaining. Look at the fact that we're pleading. Look at what we're doing mentally as well as with our mouth. Once we see that and we can recognize that that's unwholesome, that it's victimhood, that it is uh, a hindrance to being a champion. The thoughts that we're having is the thoughts of this is hard, I'll try. uh, the thoughts keep coming back. Those are all victims kind of thoughts or, or, or language, but it's an attitude. And so we have to be able to see that stuff and then change it. The whole teaching of the Buddha is based on that one word. We can get the whole teaching of the Buddha into one word, change. Or uh, the way that Ananda said it one time in one of the sutras, I think it's like 113 or something, after the Buddha died, he was in a conversation with a Brahmin, and the Brahmin says, well, can you sum up the entire teachings of the Buddha? And the summation is path, but the word path just doesn't translate well. The, the actual Pali word is maga uh, phala, uh, or the path. Uh, actually means the method so it's the this is the method the method is to remember to look and to change to remember to look and to change and all three of these are items on the eightfold noble path to remember to look and to change to look over and over and over again keep tracking the mind what's the mind doing are these thoughts wholesome? If the thoughts are wholesome, congratulations, the thoughts are wholesome already. But if the thoughts are not wholesome, if they're thoughts of I need, I want, I want to think, change, change, I want things to change means I need to change, not the things, but to change my attitude about the things, to change my language. So with that, we practice this over and over and over again, and that um, in Sutta number 118, this process, this point about changing, one, the taking one's right effort to remove the hindrances from the mind or to change the thoughts from unwholesome to wholesome, in the Anapanasati Sutta, this is actually referred to as gladdening the mind or brightening the mind or changing the mind. And the student will change the mind and says, oh, yeah, I can feel good. And then immediately they'll say, oh, but. And then they'll say, never mind, I can change. And then, oh, but again. And now the the third time it happens, he says, oh, I can't change because I did change and it didn't stay change. That we have to keep practicing and practicing and practicing over and over again. We can change. That is easy enough to see that we can change. In fact, I've got a little example that I uh, have been using recently. Think about the the color red. You know what the color red looks like? Yeah. Many, many kinds. Fire trucks and dresses and all kinds of things. Okay, now think of the color green. Like the green of the trees and plants and the forest and all of that kind of stuff. So you can think of red and then change your mind to think green. Mm-hmm. Easy enough, people can change from red to green. Now we can talk about green, and then I will say things like, don't think about red, just keep thinking about green. The red doesn't matter, we're not going to think about red, we're going to just think about green. While I'm talking about green, but mentioning red, guess what? Red starts to come into the mind also. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it kind of colors things up. So can we go back and say, never mind the red, just green and come to the green and keep it green without having this red keep coming back in over and over and over again. That's the practice. Can we practice keeping the mind in green? Because we know that we can go from red to green. 
but then the red keeps coming back because that's our old habits. So we have to keep putting green in. Now I'm using red and green as a metaphor. If I were in China, I would probably have that backwards because red is considered uh, a beautiful royal color in China, right? But uh, in the West, we have the idea of, of bled and um, menstruation and uh, all kinds of things. So red is sort of a downer, hot, that kind of thing. Devils are dressed in red. All of that kind of stuff in Western culture, where green, like uh, green energy or um, uh, all of that, has kind of got a good quality to it. And so I know that, and so I'm fiddling with it. Let's change our red to green in the sense of our thinking. Let's remove the unwholesome thoughts. So let's brighten the mind, or gladden the mind, or lighten the mind. Bring it up. Turn it green. But we have to keep doing that over and over again. Now, one of the ways that we can start to turn it from red to green, the issue with the fear is to keep reminding ourselves that, oh, right now I'm safe. Right now I don't have any worries. Any worries that I have are way off into the future. I don't have to be dealt with now. And so if I have that anxiety that I can feel in my chest, I just take a deep breath. Never mind, I don't have to do that now. What jobs that needed to be done have been done. The only job that needed to be done was actually changing those unwholesome thoughts to wholesome, to brighten the mind, or to change from red to green. That's the only job that we've got. And so we congratulate ourselves for having done a job that needed to be done, and we have done it well, and the job has been done. The job is over. What job was it? To stop being afraid to pull out the fear and to start feeling safe and secure. I would imagine, and you might agree, that almost all of the diagnostic codes that are in the uh, DSM have to do with how people manage their fear. Some of them, for sure. So you could also say that fear is the primary emotion. We call it the survival instinct. The self-preservation is instinctual. That in fact, uh, you can see even today, the fight between, um, let us say, uh, the frog and the crocodile. If the frog sees the crocodile before the crocodile sees the frog, then the frog is safe. But if the frog hears out of the corner of his ear the splashing of the frog that's under attack right now uh, because the, the alligator has seen the frog and is coming, the frog is going to jump away in fear. That fear is that survival mechanism. Fear is what keeps us from stepping into the road when the traffic is coming. We still need those fears. But most of the fears that we have are like false positives. We have such a fine-tuned mechanism, a hair trigger of fear that our society has given us that we are most likely to feel afraid with any new thing that happens. For example, every time that someone is stopped in a traffic stop, the primary feeling that the person will have is that of fear, and cops know this. And so they're on guard. Well, why are people afraid of cops? Why? Especially if you intellectually understand and know that if you behave like you're afraid of that cop, he's going to suspect that you've got a reason to be afraid. And therefore, he's really going to check you out. And the more he checks you out, the more afraid you get. And you might wind up like Floyd, dead in the road with your, you know, because he just wouldn't shut up. The police told him to shut up and get out of the car, and he wouldn't do it because he was afraid of them. And the more they pestered him, the more afraid he got, and the more crazy he got because of his fear. And if he'd have just gone along with them, taken a deep breath and done what he was told to do, he would have survived. But we go around being afraid. And so if we can catch that fear, 
and recognize what it feels like, then two things can happen. One is we can change the thoughts that we're having that cause that fear by giving ourselves fearless thoughts, or not fearless, but safety thoughts. Everything's okay. Brother, uh, so with the, uh, the feelings of safety, that means then that we can feel like we can handle it, that we are in charge that when we feel afraid, that means that we are almost automatically the, uh, in a victim's position. That we feel like that we're under attack. So when attacks really happen, it can, in fact, the worst case would be like the boy who cried wolf. He cried wolf too many times, and now we don't even pay attention to the real positive fears that we have. And so we don't know the difference between the, the automatic pilot uh, irrelevant fears that come up with those that are genuine. But if we make friends with our fear, then we can learn to manage it so that it gives us a, a positive, uh, our true positives, and gives us a reason to be afraid so that we can now monitor our behavior because we've got something real to be afraid of. So a cop coming up to the car is nothing to be afraid of. But when he pulls that gun out, now it's time to become afraid. Unless you're Jack Reaper or something like that, and then you are still not afraid. You'll just push that gun aside. But when you're in the car and the gun's outside the car, you don't have any um, uh, fast actions that you can take. So there are times for fear. But in fact, if the cop did pull his gun out, that means we've already done something pretty stupid. And we need to recheck re ourselves. So um, when, when we practice correctly, we're going to be practicing to, to be in a state of satisfaction. That in fact, sukha is exactly opposite of dukkha. And so getting ourselves into a state of sukha means that we are in a state of satisfaction and we cannot be in a state of satisfaction when we're in a state of anxiety, when we're tense, when we're uptight, when we're worried. So we have to deal with that one by one as they occur in the sense that if feelings of fear arise, we can say nothing to be afraid of. If itches uh, arrive, we need to do something to do to gain our uh, something comfortable so that we can be comfortable in the body. When we're comfortable in the body, safe and secure, then we can deal with the issue of satisfaction in the sense of not wanting anything. That safe and secure right now are enough, and so I can feel satisfied. Okay, so safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied is what we're going to start practicing over and over again to get ourselves in that state of sukha, to change it from being unsafe, uncomfortable, and dissatisfied. Because that's the way that most people live their lives much of the time. You have probably heard uh, someplace that it, it said that people only use 10% of their brain. Have you ever yeah, heard that? Yeah, that's not exactly uh, true, yeah. It, right, uh, what that was uh, back in the old time, that was back in the 1950s. A much more correct way of saying it is, is that everybody uses 100% of their brain about 10% of the time. <laughs> and the rest of the time, we're operating by instinct. We're on automatic pilot. Okay, then in fact, most aircraft is flown by automatic pilot but not all of it, then in fact, if there's weather, if there's a uh, uh, crowded area, if you're landing, if you're taking off, any of that kind of stuff requires a pilot on board or two of them, right? Even though most of the flying is done, but the, the problem with automatic pilot is, is that it is uh, an, uh, a simple program, that it cannot detect mountains ahead. It cannot detect thunderstorms ahead. It cannot detect anything other than this is the way I'm supposed to go. So you can think of the automatic pilot on an airplane as very much like the instincts 
the instinct of self-preservation, the appropriation instinct, the nesting instinct, the territorial instincts that we've mentioned before, is the way that we operate on automatic pilot. On top of that, a whole lot of bad advice that we have gotten from other people who have been operating on automatic pilot and bad advice. And so what we need to start doing then is to recognize that we don't have to run. In fact, most of the time that we're on automatic pilot, it's time to wake up and look at the fact that, the, that this automatic pilot is taking us in the wrong direction. That we need to make a change. We need to make course correction. And so this is what we need to do then is become the captain of our ship. We have to become the manager of our lives, the boss, the emperor of our own world. And how do we do that is by waking up and taking control and how we take control is by making some changes. And so this whole teaching of the Buddha is a process of making changes. You have to take control. Now, there's a lot of meditation practices that talk about. Um, uh, just watch the breath. Well, if you just watch the breath, the, the mind's just going to wander right away again. It's got no skin in the game. Imagine that you were watching someone play a video game over his shoulder. He's watching the game. You're, uh, he's playing the game. You're watching him play the game, and something happens. A noise will happen. Somebody calls you, say, please come here, or something like that. Maybe the phone will ring. Because he's intent in the game, he's not going to leave that game. He's going to continue playing it longer. You're going to get distracted first because you don't have any skin in that game. You're the one who's going to answer the phone, not him. Well, nowadays, everybody's got their own cell phones, but uh, and so it's different now. But in the old days, never mind. You get the idea that we have to put some skin in the game. So the mind will wander away if we're just watching the breath. But if we're actually playing the breath, playing the game of the breath, by controlling it, then we can not just control the breathing, but we're controlling the mind at the same time. So we're controlling the mind in two ways. One is to remove the unwholesome thoughts from the mind, which are basically past and future oriented, and come in and start controlling the breath, which is basically thoughts that have to do with right now. That this is a long breath, I know it's a long breath. This is an out breath, I know it's a long out breath. And we, so we start controlling the breathing by controlling the mind. And while we're also controlling the mind, we're controlling it by keeping wholesome thoughts in. Like I feel safe. Wow, this is a good breath. Oh, I'm still alive, I can breathe. Right, so we have these kinds of thoughts as well as that kind of breathing, and we can use the thinking and the body as kind of a tensor movement to start working on feelings. They control the mind and then control the breathing and control the body and making the body intently, intentionally making the body feel comfortable. A lot of people practice meditation by sitting too long and then the body gets uh, uncomfortable and the mind gets dull. That's not what we're practicing. We're practicing the teachings of the Buddha here. We're not practicing endurance. We're practicing joy. Come into a state of joy by keeping the body comfortable while keeping the breathing going very well and beginning to develop the feeling of safe, secure, comfortable, and satisfied. Now, when we practice this over and over and over and over again, we develop confidence that we can change. We can begin to bend this um, attitude of being a victim into the attitude of being successful. I can change my mind. I don't have to be the slave to my own complaining. I don't have to be critical of myself. I could be nurturing instead. And so we intentionally start having nurturing thoughts and we uh, start then to change our deep-seated attitudes so that you begin to feel 
like you can do this. You can feel successful. You can feel like you've got this wire. And when we do this, this is now that fourth element called in the Pali Sama Sankapa that we started talking about at the beginning. The Sama Sankapa is that attitude, the attitude of being a winner rather than a victim to our own thoughts, that you can control your mind and think of the kind of thoughts that you want to have and the kind of thoughts you want to have or to give yourself the feelings that you want to have. And most people don't have feelings they want to have. They have feelings that they were raised with. And so we do it by habit. I mean, how many people actually want all of those people who do experience so much fear? Do they actually want to feel afraid? No, they want to feel safe. So start practicing feeling the way you want to feel rather than continue to feel the way that you're in the habit of feeling. This is the practice to take a deep breath and to feel safe and secure and satisfied and successful at doing this one thing, safe, secure, satisfied, and successful at being safe and secure, satisfied, and successful over and over and over again. This is the practice. These are four elements on the Eightfold Noble Path. The fifth element on the Eightfold Noble Path is called the Samadhi mind. And what the word Samadhi here means is not concentration. It means gathering the factors together. Well, what factors are we gathering together? To remember, to look, and to change so that you feel satisfied, successful, safe, secure, and wealthy. And so now we bring that as the unification quality. And when the mind is unified, that means that we don't want anything. If you don't want anything, then you're really unlikely to go kill anybody to get it. If you don't want anything, then you're unlikely to hurt someone. If you really feel good, then they're unlikely to go get drunk in order for you to feel good. You already feel good. There's no reason to lie about someone or to get something because everybody's already okay. You don't have to fix them. They're not broken in my mind. They're broken only in their mind. So this is the actual practice of the Eightfold Noble Path. And so today we'll leave that as, an, as the introduction for practice. And the way that I would recommend practicing is by spending not long periods of time. Many mm -hmm. teachers say to practice an hour a day. I would say, well, yes, an hour, but not all at once. Mm -hmm. Take a nibble here and there of five or 10 minutes and just stop for 10 minutes and sit down and say, for 10 minutes, I'm going to get myself into a really good mood. And then I'm going to go do whatever needs to be done. And then a couple of three hours later, I come back and say, never mind what I'm doing. I'm going to stop doing that. I'm going to spend 10 minutes getting myself back into a really, really good state. I'm going to watch my breathing. I'm going to watch the mind. And I'm going to control the thoughts so that I can control the feelings and get myself back into a really good mood. Then we go off and we do whatever we, we want or need to do. And then we come back again and we practice it again mm -hmm. four, five, six times a day over and over again. And we begin to get the benefit of it. And after a few weeks, other people will begin to see the benefit of it. Because why? Because you're remembering to practice that right in front of them. So instead of giving them the same old garbage that you've been giving them, <laughs> now you give them a great big smile instead. And so this is the practice that we have, is the practice over and over again of these four things, to remember, to look, and to change, and to congratulate. To remember, to look, to change, and to become the champion. Those four things, and those four things will then organize the mind into that wholesome state that we all crave and don't know how to get. Mm -hmm. So, what do you think? Uh, <clears throat> well, I've uh, I've really found it helpful indeed to like have uh, these um, short practice sessions because they really like help uh, you know 
uh, to keep the sati going throughout the day. Because like mm -hmm. if I, for a long time, I used to like, you know, want to find this one part of the day where I would practice. And then sometimes I would even maybe forget or not want to do that. Cause it's like, oh, now I have to sit for an hour. So yeah, I'm finding it helpful to like spread it out. And it really gives right, the five or know, 10 minutes. One time that's really good is right in the early morning, just as mm -hmm. you wake up. Yeah. Yeah. Is to say, right now I don't have to get up. Right now I'm just going to lay here and it just feel good. Mm -hmm. Then when we go to bed at night, a lot of people go to bed by putting themselves under pressure. You got to go to sleep because you got so much. Yeah. Tomorrow. You got this, that, this, that, this, that, and all of this stuff. Yeah, I know that one. <laughs> we can lay down and just say, well, I don't have any place to go and nothing to do for the next eight hours. I can just lay here and relax and feel good. Okay, so this is the way that we would practice. Just taking mm -hmm. those short times during the day and just clean out the mind and come in and start to work on with this uh, a joyful work, a toy to play with. It's the toy of feeling safe, feeling secure, feeling comfortable, feeling satisfied, and feeling successful. Practice that over mm -hmm. and over again. So one uh, quick question I had about wholesome thoughts is like, does it matter whether, uh, so like usually I keep repeating, you know, the same few things like, you know, I have nowhere to go, nothing to do. I feel safe. Mm -hmm. I feel comfortable. Does it matter whether those I just uh, tell myself those things or whether I have like a more diverse set of wholesome thoughts? Does it matter? Well, first off, we got to recognize that I've been spending that time talking about those things because we know that those are wholesome. Mm -hmm. We also know that there's a whole quality of thoughts that we know are not wholesome. Yeah. Like thoughts of hurting someone, thoughts of revenge, thoughts mm -hmm. of getting even, thoughts of comparing ourselves to others. So these would be unwholesome thoughts. But then there's a whole long range of thoughts that are in between. Mm -hmm. I would say don't worry too much about those throughout the day, but you do when you're actual practicing mm -hmm. is to make sure that these thoughts are wholesome. And one of the best ways to keep thoughts wholesome is by keeping them here now, by watching this breath, by looking at and examining what the eyes are actually seeing. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard of the Bates method? Mm, I don't think so. Well, this, this Bates was somebody who was uh, closely related to Alexander Lowen, and he was uh, intent on solving the issue of nearsightedness. Mm. For many, many years, every child had to go to the ophthalmologist to get checked. And actually, they read all the time. They got their face in the books all the time. And so they become nearsighted all the time. And what did the doctors do? They put nearsighted glasses on them, which makes them even more and more nearsighted. The Bates method is to go out in the open daylight and gaze and look at distant things, intentionally start to open our gazing and using our eyes and looking at what we're looking at. This would be wholesome. To just sit outside and just listen without listening to anything, but just listening. Can you hear the birds? Can you hear the chirping? Can you hear mm -hmm. the wind? Can you hear the cars in the distance? Whatever you can hear, okay? So this is an opening of being in the here now. And while you're doing that, you're not having any unwholesome thoughts at all. Mm -hmm. Mm. Well, what I what I mean is like when I uh, when I uh, repeat this few wholesome thoughts over and over again, it you know it takes not much effort. It becomes kind of like a mantra. Whereas if I like create some new wholesome thoughts, that takes a little bit more effort. So I'm just wondering I whether I give you mm -hmm. that. That's in fact one of the things that I can uh, always say is that this investigation. Mm -hmm. of what is this, a wholesome or an unwholesome thought is a skill to be developed. Yeah, sure. Okay. And so develop that skill. Go find out for yourself what kind of thoughts are wholesome that make you feel good. What other kinds of thoughts? Thoughts of work to do generally doesn't make us feel good. Mm -hmm. Ah, but it might. If we make it, uh, if we figure something out, oh, now I understand something. I mean, because there's still a whole lot of medical stuff to get figured out. We don't have it wired yet. People still die. They get old. They get sick. 
So we haven't finished that job yet. And so insights are quite valuable. And so thinking about it from that perspective would be wholesome. As opposed to, oh, I've got to go do this, which would then be unwholesome because that puts you in a victim's position. But to have wholesome thoughts from the position of, a, of the winner, of putting two and two together to really look and see what's going on. The mull things over, but then after a while, we can reflect upon the past, but we need to remember that that's what we're doing and that reflection can be dangerous. We can wind up start regretting the past rather than reflecting upon the past. So I invite you to go do that investigation for yourself to figure out your thoughts, whether they're wholesome or not. And if they're not, change them. And if they are, congratulate yourself. And if they're not, change them and then congratulate yourself. <laughs> so this is how I would handle that over and over and over again. It has to be practiced. That's the thing. So taking six times a day for five or 10 minutes, practice. Practice getting yourself into a really good state. Do that for a few days and give me a call. We'll take it from there. All right. All right. Well, we'll see you. <laughs>